Amen. Amen. Welcome to the Church of 1122, a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Even if you don't have a tattoo, you are even welcome in our church. Amen? I know some of you are thinking, I got to get tatted up so I can fit in at church. Did you ever think you would say that? Well, be like Jesus, get a tattoo. Hey, uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, get, grab it. We're going to be in Judges chapter 8, 9, a little bit of 10 uh, today. We are, we are kind of in the middle of this multi-week series called Again. It's a study of the book of Judges. At this point, I don't have time to recap all the Judges that we have studied that that uh, Israel has been on this constant cycle. That's why we're calling it again, this constant cycle of regret, remorse, try again, instead of repentance. And last week, uh, we ended off on, on the story of Gideon, and we stopped at the kind of the, the peak and the pinnacle of his career. Today, we're going to talk about how the mighty fall. See, I want to take you back to 1920. Oh, before I do that, happy 4th of July, and I never want to miss the opportunity to just say that we are a land of the free because of the brave. So thank you to all the men and women that make freedom possible for us. Because you do what you do, we get together here in Jesus' name. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Blow some stuff up for America tomorrow. All right, good. Now, let me read you this. 1923, a group of our greatest leaders and richest businessmen in America held a meeting at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Among them were Charles Schwab, he was the head of the largest independent steel company, Samuel Insel, president of the world's largest utility, Howard Hobson, head of the largest gas company, Ivan Kruger, president of International Match Company, one of the world's largest companies at that time, Leon Frazier, president of the Bank of International Settlements, Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange, Arthur Cotton and Jesse Livermore, two of the biggest stock speculators. Albert Fall, a member of the President Harding's cabinet. 25 years later, nine of these titans ended their lives as follows. Schwab died penniless after living for five years on borrowed money. Insel died broke and in a foreign land. Kruger and Cotton also died broke. Hobson went insane. Whitney and Albert Fall were released from prison. Frazier and Livermore committed suicide. How in the world do some of the best and brightest from 1923 go from the top to the very bottom? And it's not just 1923, is it? I mean, read the newspapers today. It doesn't take you very long to find a CEO, a president of something, a pastor, a pastor, a pastor that was incredibly blessed by God, and they go from this mighty man of valor like Gideon was to just broken. And, and not just physically broken, and not just financially broken, but spiritually broken, how does that happen? You see, because when we left off Gideon, he was doing awesome, remember? He was a mighty man of valor. And over time, not overnight, but over time, he actually believed that that is who he was because God told him that. He raises up an army of 32,000 people. God whittles it down to 300 people. He goes in and he wipes out the Midianites without even swinging a sword. He is the man. And then if you grew up in Sunday school, that's where your Sunday school class stopped. And then we just move on to the next judge. Well, there's the rest of the story. The rest of the story ain't so good. See, a few years ago, I went to um, 
Pastor Ben's grandfather's funeral, all right? And I just went to support Pastor Ben. I, I'd never met his granddad. I kind of got to know him through the funeral. And he was cool, man. He was so cool. He looked like a skinny Johnny Cash, all right? And he had like real cool jet black hair that started from here. And I'm always a little jealous of anybody who gets to keep hair more than 40 years. And so, but he was a cool dude. <clears throat> and he didn't know Jesus growing up, or at least he didn't act like it. He was an auto mechanic and just, just he acted like a 1950s kind of greaser guy. That's what he was. But then he met Jesus and his life was just on target from then on. He loved his family well, followed Jesus well. And Pastor Ben said this at the funeral. He said, you know, it's not how you start, it's how you finish that counts. And I thought, oh, that should be a proverb or something, shouldn't it? That's amazing. It's not how you start, it's how you finish that counts. And that's good for, for Pastor Ben's granddad. It wasn't so good for Gideon. You see, Gideon, where we end last week, he's at the top, man. He is a, a mighty man of valor, doing big things for the Lord. And then... When you, when you pick it up in chapter 8 of Judges, on his way home, you can still, you can see the, the wheels, man. They kind of start to get a little wobbly. I'll just kind of summarize verses 1 to 20. He's chasing after these two guys, these two kings of Midian. They're, they're kind of the only ones left that he hadn't wiped out yet. And as he's chasing them, he goes through these two towns, and he kind of has a scuffle with these two different towns. One of the towns or tribes is, is called Ephraim, and Ephraim is rich. They're full of leaders. They got a lot of power. They got a lot of money, a lot of influence. And they say, Gideon, how dare you go to war and get all the glory for yourself? Why didn't you invite us to be a part of the battle? So what Gideon does is, is, is he kind of pacifies them. He says what they want to hear, and he kind of calms them down, and, just, and he just treats them. Uh, he, he's not the leader that God has called him to be. And so he just says exactly what they want to hear because they're rich and they're powerful, and he thinks, I might need them one day on my side. And then he bumps into another town or another tribe, and it's called Succoth. It's got to be the worst town name in the history of towns. All right, let's just be honest. <laughs> And uh, I think that's Hebrew for Dillon, South Carolina. I think that's what it is because it sucketh. That's just where I'm from. <clears throat> now, they're poor and they got nothing, like Dillon, okay? Poor and they got nothing. And so he does not bow down to them and pacify them. He bows up to them and just exerts strength over them and says, I tell you what, you don't give me what I want. When I get back here, I'm going to line up the elders of your town and I'm going to whip them with thorn bushes. That's what he says. And so already you're getting to see this kind of some character falls in Gideon, he's not a mighty man of valor. He kind of, he acts different depending on the, the different groups that he's with. Then we pick it up in chapter 8, verse 21. It says, basically what's happened up to this point, he finally catches up with these two kings of Midian. And he beats them down and he's going to have his, his boy, his son, who's not even a man yet. He's going to have him kill these kings to totally, totally shame them. But the boy won't do it because he's scared. So in verse 21, it says, then Zeba and Zalmunna, these are the two kings that he's been chasing around. They said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. In other words, come on, man, at least kill us like men. And Gideon arose, and he killed those two guys, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Now, if you're running Gideon's books, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Look, Gideon, you're not supposed to take any spoils for yourself. All that you know, goes to the kingdom. And so, but he's starting to, in war, kind of take some of the stuff for his own self. Verse 22 says, and then the men of Israel, and this is after he gets home, then the men of Israel, they said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, which is a great thing to say. It's the exact right thing to say. The only problem is he's saying the right thing, but his life is not going to match what he's saying at all. Check it out in verse 24. <clears throat> right after he says that, no, nah, I'm not going to be your king, he starts doing king stuff. Verse 24, 
Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. In other words, he kind of starts collecting taxes like a king would. And it says, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Apparently Ishmaelites uh, like earrings. Who knew? My wife was an Ishmaelite. So there you go. Verse 25. <laughs> and they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's Hebrew for a bunch. All right. It's a whole lot. Besides the crescent ornaments and pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. Boy, the kings of Midian dressed like Rick James, didn't they? That's, uh, he was a 20th century prophet. You can Google him later. And besides the collars that were around the necks on the camels. And then Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. An ephod was a garment that only a priest was supposed to wear, according to the book of Leviticus. And an ephod, the high priest would put it on. He, he was only supposed to wear it in and around the temple, the holy city. And he would put it on when they were requesting direction from God. And so now what Gideon is doing is while it, with his mouth he is saying, no, 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 I am not your king, I am not your king. Then he builds this golden ephod, he hangs it up in his town, and he says, hey, if you've got a question, don't go to God at the temple, why don't you come see me in my town? And he is making much of himself building his own kingdom, not building the kingdom of God. In verse 28, and so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubal, which is just Gideon's nickname, which means Baal tail whooper. Baal was a false god, and he beat him up in the last chapter, and so that was his nickname. So Gideon, the son of jo Joash, went and he lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Uh-oh. That's not good. Now, <clears throat> let me point something out. In the scriptures, in the scriptures, regardless of what you believe, politically, whatever, in the scriptures, marriage was God's idea. And marriage was to reflect the covenant nature of God with his people. It's not a contractual deal. It's not like if you, then I'll. That's a contract. That's what you have with the Verizon. That's why none of you are in love with the Verizon, okay? But God is a covenant God. No matter what you do, this is what I do. So when you made a vow, that's what you said. I vow, I promise, for better or worse, death do we part. And so God defined marriage as one man, one woman, one lifetime. That's it. Now, some people have said to me, even on a radio show I did here in town one time, somebody said to me, yeah, but you say that's what marriage is, but doesn't the Old Testament support polygamy? No. Now, there's lots of examples in here, but if you read the Old Testament, if you read the Bible and think that it's for polygamy, then you should stay away from the adult books and stick to the ones that color, okay? Because the point of it is every time people got outside of the parameters and the boundaries that God set, then their world blew up. And so when, when Gideon here, when he gets outside of the parameters, then his world completely blows up because he's got 70 sons and his own offspring, he's got many wives, and that wasn't enough. And his concubine, that's a little something on the side, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And you think, oh, that's a good name, Abimelech. Abimelech means my father is king. That's what the name means. So they come to him and say, Gideon, please be our king. No, 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 no. I could never be king, but I will take taxes. I will have a harem. And have you met my boy? His name is my dad is king, y'all. That's what he does. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried at the tomb of Joash's father at Oprah of the Abiezrites. Verse 33, as soon as Gideon died. As soon as Gideon died. You want to know what kind of legacy Gideon leads? Here it goes. 
As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, and they made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. You know what they're doing? They're just doing exactly what their leader did. By the way, this is the first time that Israel falls off the wagon while there still is a judge here. And then his son, Abimelech, who, again, his, his name means my dad is the king. He goes to Shechem, which is the covenant city between God and Abraham. This is a big deal. And he starts paying people off to say, hey, don't you think we should have a king? And he'd pay people. And they're like, yeah, we need a king. And the king should definitely be one of Gideon's sons because Gideon was such a mighty man of valor. And then the moment, the moment he had a straw pole and had enough people believing that, then what Abimelech does, this is all at the end of chapter 8 and end of chapter 9, then Abimelech kills 69 of his brothers on a rock. That's what it says. And so he kills them all. And there's only one left, and that brother's name was Jotham. And Jotham gives this parable real quick that essentially says, um, he says, you know, there was a forest asking for a king. And so they went to the olive tree, and the olive tree said, I can't be king because I'm making too much olive oil. I'm too busy. So they went, to, uh, they went to a fig tree, and the fig tree was like, look, the fig newton just came out, and i got to put my efforts into that. And then so they went to a, a vine, and, and the vine was like, look, we're going to Napa. We're making money. We're making wine. We ain't doing this. And so they went to a thorn bush, which isn't really a tree, but the thorn bush said, I'll be king. But you got to burn all the trees down first. And then Jotham, the younger brother, says, you just elected a thorn bush to be your king. And then the Bible says that the brother moves to a place called Beer, which sounds like an amazing place to live to me, America. All right, here we go. And so then, after that, after Abimelech is king, they elect him king. Then he gets sideways with Shechem, the same little group of people that his dad got sideways with. And instead of talking to him, he just wipes them out. He sends in the army, wipes them out. There's a little group of leaders. They run into this tower, this stronghold. They think they're safe. And so ironically enough, he gathers a bunch of thorn bushes together, surrounds the tower with it, lights it on fire, burns them all down. Then puts salt all over the covenant city of God so that nothing will grow there. Then he's just kind of, he's just power hungry. So he attacks the neighboring town called Thebes, does the same thing, comes in, wipes everybody out. The people do the same thing. They, the leaders, they run up into this, this tower, this stronghold. And he's like, oh, I know how to do this. So he gets some more thorn bushes, surrounds the tower with it. As he goes to light it, there's a woman at the top of the tower and she takes a millstone. And a millstone would just be what you would like grind corn or wheat with. It would just be a common household utensil. She takes a moderate-sized millstone. She drops it out the window. It cracks Abimelech in the head, and he falls down. He's not dead, but his head's cracked open. And so he looks at one of his friends and is like, Brother, will you please kill me? Will you please stab me with a sword? Because I do not want to be the second person recorded in the book of Judges to be killed by a woman with a common household utensil, okay? And so the guy kills him. For two chapters, you never see the covenant name of God. For two chapters, you never see the people cry out to God. And then another judge comes, and the only thing said about this judge is he has 30 donkeys. That's just what it says. That's the best he did. He had a nice ride, a bunch of them, all right? That's it. And so what you have is you have a couple of generations of people that followed their leader, Gideon. And while at one point they were seeking the face of God, then the Bible says a generation later they were doing what was right in their own eyes. To the point where by the time you get to chapter 10, verse 14, here's what happens. Finally, finally the people are at, at the bottom of the pit and they cry out to God and here's how God responds. In verse 14, God says of chapter 10, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. And the reason God said that is because he knew that the gods that they had chosen did not have the power to save them. So here's what I want to talk about. How do the mighty fall? 
How do you go from like where Gideon is, this mighty man of valor, to the place of just other desperation and destruction? Well, what I want to do is not just teach you, and listen, if you're new to Bible study, get on your swimmies, we're diving into the deep end, okay? We don't really slow play it here at 1122. It's a bullet train of the gospel, hop on, there's room for everybody, but, but you, you, can, you can keep up, all right? Here's what I want to teach you. I'm not just trying to teach you events in the Bible. What I want to teach you to do is try to understand and study the Bible. So a big part of what I try to do is whenever there are paradigms that are in all of the scripture from, Gen- from Genesis to Revelation, then, then we kind of hang our hat on a few of those around here. The first and foremost is this, that the whole book is about Jesus. It's not a book about you. It's a book about the one that came to redeem you, okay? And I know what preachers mean when they say this is God's love letter for you, sort of, but it's just not about you. It's about God's redeeming work through his son, Jesus. So everything, one of the paradigms to look through, wherever you are in the scripture is what does this say about Jesus? Another paradigm that we talk about here is the preeminence of Christ, or the way we say it is that he is before all things. And when you begin to understand that God is first and we are responding to the firstness of God, it will open up a whole new layer and level of what parables mean and what Old Testament events mean. Also, there's another theme that goes all the way throughout the scripture, and it's that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. That's why it's the most commanded thing in the Bible. Do not be afraid. And it's also why faith is the currency by which we know and please God. And so the one I want to, the principle that if you can grab onto here can help you in your own life and help you understand all kind of parts of the Bible. And it also answers the question of how the mighty fall is this. It's the principle of the schemes of the enemy. It's the principle of the schemes of the enemy. And so I put it in your notes this way as the point. If you are not rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then you will be surely uprooted by the schemes of the enemy. Now, the good news is this, that he only has three that the enemy, by the sovereignty of God, only has three schemes that he's ever used since the very beginning of human history. And here's what they are. I put them in your notes. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Now, the ESV, the translation of the Bible that we use, calls it the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, and the pride of life. But I just like the word lust better. Lust is in the NIV and the King James Version. It's just a better word. Say lust. Lust. All right, now that was a little too much right there, but I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? And so if you take this paradigm that I didn't make up, I'll show you where I got it in just a minute. I'll also put it in your notes. And then you ask the question, so how did Gideon go from a mighty man of valor to utter destruction and ruin? Well, guess what? He had three problems. Gideon had three problems. Number one was greed. This is the lust of the eyes. In chapter 8, verse 21, it says that Gideon took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of the camels. And in verse 24, Gideon said to the people, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. You see, in Gideon's greediness, he began to leverage God's blessing for his own gain. And it started small. I'll just take a little bit of this for me. And it spread to, I need everybody to give me some of what is theirs. And this money was about trying to impress everybody else. And then Gideon began to leverage the position that God had given him, not for the kingdom of God, but for the kingdom of Gideon. That was one. He was greedy. Now, here's the problem with greed. Nobody thinks they're greedy. Nobody does. That's all right. We'll get to that in a second. The second problem he had is lust, lust of the flesh. Verse 30, now Gideon had 70 sons of his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. At some point... 
At some point, Gideon starts taking his eyes off of the Lord and putting them on some girls in every town he would go to. And essentially what Gideon says to the Lord is, I'm smarter than you, God. I know you created sex and relationships and romance and all of that. And I know marriage is supposed to be about a husband loving and serving his wife, but I'm not gonna love and serve a woman in, in a covenant relationship. No, I'm gonna use up a woman like a commodity. And when I'm done with her, I'm just gonna get another one and another one and another one and another one. I'm gonna do what I want with who I want when I want. Because I have this appetite and doggone it, I'm gonna fill it however I want because I want it my way and that's how I'm gonna get it. That's what Gideon does. By the way, it's kind of the mantra of American sexuality right now. The third problem that, that Gideon has is this, ego. It's the pride of life that he wanted to build his kingdom. That's why verse 31 says, and his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and he called his name Abimelech, my dad's king, y'all. It was more about him and his own kingdom than it was about the kingdom of God. Now, how in the world can a man like Gideon, this mighty man of valor, fall? Because the enemy has been prowling around like a roaring lion since the very beginning of human history, and he's thrown the same three temptations or lures at every single one of us throughout all of hum human history. And so what I think is true is that if you could identify what kind of lure or tactic that the enemy is coming after you with, then you would be better equipped through the power of the gospel to see this lure for what it actually is and reject him and turn to the Lord. So in your notes, I put 1 John 2, 16 and 17. If you weren't here last year, we did a study on the book of John. That's what we do. We basically just, the majority of the time, study books of the Bible. Primarily because I'm not smart enough to come up with sermon ideas myself, so I just read the book, tell you what it means. Okay, so 1 John is all about the assurance of our salvation. That our salvation is not found in the imperfect works of us, but our, the assurance of our salvation is found in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, that counted for you. And so John, by the power of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. He says, for all that is in the world, and then he's gonna tell us everything that this world has to offer or every trick or temptation that the enemy can throw our way. And here they are. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's it. That's all this world has to offer. It is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Abides is a relational word. So in other words, what John says, what Gideon experienced, is that the enemy, listen, the enemy's like a bass fisherman, and he's only got three lures. That's how this thing works. Do we have any fishermen in the room? Come on, raise your hand, fisher people. Raise your hand loud and proud, okay, here you go. All right, I'm not gonna make fun of you, it's good. All right, anybody have a boat and you like to go fishing on your boat? Raise your hand high, okay, I see that hand. I would like to pray with you guys after the service. That would be great. Anybody on this side of the room don't wanna leave you out, got a boat, okay, all right. Listen, Jesus did a lot of ministry on a boat. All right, I'd be happy to tell your wife that and we'll go out and do ministry, okay? So, no problem there. <clears throat> so I love to fish, I do, it's super fun. And one of the blessings of living in North Florida is some of the best bass fishing in the world are the little neighborhood and golf course ponds right around here. And so I've got a retention pond in my like front yard, right at the end of my driveway, basically. And I fish other people's ponds with a bucket and I catch a nice one, I put it in my pond and then I just re-catch it, okay? Don't judge me, I don't care. So, 
<clears throat> basically, when you go fishing, you only have three options if you're, if you're using artificials to catch bass, all right? Either you've got some kind of rubber or plastic worm or salamander or something like that, okay? Or you've got some kind of plug, like a topwater plug or a deep diving plug, but some kind of plug. Or you've got a spinnerbait. That's basically all there is, okay? It's like a helicopter going through the water. And what you do if you're a good bass fisherman is you start out, like if I start out in the morning, I start with a hula popper, all right, because I like it, and I tie it on there, and we've got these little set of lily pads, and you throw that thing over there, and you go, bloom, bloom, bloom. And what you're trying to do is a lure is alluring, and you're trying to trick Big Billy Bass because he's laying under there, and he's like, what is that? That looks like a torpedo that just fell out of the sky and making some crazy noise. And then sometimes the big Billy Bass is like, no, nah, I ain't even trying to eat that. I mean, I can tell, I can totally tell it looks like a hot dog just fell off your house. Okay, that's not, no way. So what do you do if that doesn't work? You clip that off and you tie on another lure, all right? You tie on a, a black worm. That's my favorite thing to use. And you throw that out there and you bring it across the bottom a little bit. And sometimes he might look at that and be like, whoa, whoa, look at it jiggle. Look at, uh oh, uh oh. But maybe he doesn't like that. And so then what you do is you clip that one off and then you go to the spinner bait and you throw that. And he's like, no way, a helicopter right through the water. I got it. And then he's like, no, and you got him. That's how it works. See, here's the thing about temptation. It's tempting. And every lure has a hook. And the enemy only has three lures. And so this is exactly what he does. He has the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he throws them continuously in front of us. And some of you, some of you aren't pride of life people. You don't even struggle with pride of life. And he ties on that pride of life, and he throws it right in front of you. And you're like, that's so pride of life. I am not going down that ego train at all. That's not what I'm doing. And so what he'll do is he'll clip that one off, and then he'll tie on the lust of the eyes, which means stuff. And he throws some stuff in front of you, and you're like, oh, I can totally tell that's a top water plug. I, I ain't even going for that. And then, so he clips that one off, and then he goes the lust of the flesh. And he throws it in. It's like a plastic worm. And you're like, ooh, look at that jiggle. And then, see what it is? And then... <laughs> You're like, I got to have that. And before you know it, it has you. That's what that means. And so the enemy, this is all he has. This is what he throws at Gideon. This is what he throws at you and I. The lust of the flesh. That's about feeling. That's like, I want to feel a certain way. And it could, be, it, could be, it could be about food, it could be about sex, it could be about drink, it could be about numbing yourself with a drug. But it's about a, it's about a feeling. It's about passion. It's about sex, it's about appetite. The desires of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, that's the desire to have something. Like you didn't even know you wanted it until you saw it. It's about possessions, it's about stuff, it's about affections. And the pride of life, that's about being somebody. Not for yourself or not to please God, but to please the people around you. It's about position, it's about status, it's about, it's about ambitions. And you see, you see every Every time you watch a commercial on television, marketers have understood that these are the three things that hook us, and they try to hook us with these, three, these same three things. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Like the, like the lust of the flesh. Have you seen a hearty stick burger com commercial lately? That's about lust of the flesh, not just your stomach, okay? And you look at that, and you're like, I bet she doesn't eat that all the time because she's real skinny, and that burger is not. And then what happens at the end? You're like, I am starving. Why am I so hungry, all right? It's the lust of the flesh. You have an appetite, and you should fill that appetite. And then the desires of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. That's when you see something and you want it. And you didn't even know you wanted it until you saw it. Don't, aren't there some things in your life you just wish you never saw? Some of you are driving things that you wish you'd never seen, right? And, it, and this is what HGTV is built on, 100%. 
You moved into your house, you're like, our house is amazing. I love this house. He had a pastor come over and pray over it. Dear God, thank you for this house. And then you flip on HGTV and you're like, baby, get in here. Our house is terrible. Like, what's wrong with our house? Well, look what they have. Our ceilings are too low. I feel like I got a hunch around. They're only nine feet tall. How can we even live in such a place? Our refrigerator is not silver. I bet we can't even eat food out of it and we don't have granary counter. We've got to tear all this out and put new stuff in. You didn't even know it until you saw somebody else with it. And listen, ladies, I love to pick on you because it's easier because I don't care what color my refrigerator is. But guys, it's true for us too. You let me walk in a Cabela's, all right? And I'm like, oh, look at that. I didn't even know I needed that until I saw it. Or I can just, I can, honestly, I'm not a car guy, okay? I'm not a car guy. That's why I like to make fun of you and your cars. I think you and your little sports cars, you look like you're at, you're, you're at Adventure Landing, fellas. That's what you look like to me. Drive around in a little car, nink, nink, awesome, okay? You look silly to me, all right? But a truck, <laughs> I mean, I drive, I drive a truck like a grown man, and so I, I like my truck. My truck's three years old, I love it. It's four-wheel drive, off-road, I think it's awesome, you know what? But, but there's, there's, there's one kind of truck, and it's called a Raptor, and a guy on our staff has one, okay? And it's like, it's like a Tonka truck or something. And the other day, he's like, man, you want to drive it? I was like, no, I don't want to drive it. No, because if I get in it, I'm afraid it might get in me and then I won't like my truck anymore. You know what I mean? Have you ever noticed how your car is fine until you decide you're going to get a new car? And then your car is just like terrible. One of my good friends that I coach baseball with just got a new truck. And it's all nice and leather on the inside. And my son rode home from the baseball game with him the other day. And so he gets out of his truck and gets into our truck. Again, my truck's great. It's three years old. It's awesome. We have cloth. We don't have leather. JP gets out of his truck, gets in my truck, and is like, Dad, his truck is awesome. It smells like a new truck. He goes, you know what your truck smells like? And I said, you. It smells like you. That's what it smells like. My truck was fine. And then when you start smelling other people's, you're like, mine smells like my children. That's what happens, okay? And you know what that is? That's the lust of the eyes. When we see stuff, we see stuff. We didn't even know we wanted it until we see it. And then the third one is ego. It's pride of life. This is what car commercials try to sell us on. You want to be a man, you drive this truck. About, about a year ago, Lincoln, Lincoln tried to convince us that if you buy a Lincoln and you drive around late at night, that you could be just like Matthew, all right, all right, all right, McConaughey. That's what they tried to teach us. And that's a lie. If you drive a Lincoln, you will not be like Matthew McConaughey. At best, you'll be qualified to drive Uber. That's the best you got, okay? <laughs> and if we can identify what the enemy is gonna throw at us, I believe that we can have the antidote to come against it. Here's how I know that this is the only thing that he has. Because if you go all the way back to the beginning, if you go back to the book of Genesis, the first time our enemy tempted Adam and Eve, the very first people, guess what he used? He used these three temptations. Genesis chapter three, verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, this is where the enemy always starts. He wants to subvert the word of God. Is that, are you sure what the Bible says? That, or I know that's what it says, but that, it, it may used to mean that, but he doesn't mean that anymore. You see, the enemy wants to get you to believe your doubts and doubt your beliefs. And what we need to do as followers of Jesus is believe our beliefs and doubt our doubts. Verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That's not exactly what God said. 
She gets it close, but now she's kind of twisting it around just a little bit. Verse 4, And so the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. And he's lying to her. Do you know how we know he's lying? Because that's his native tongue. That's all he can speak. He is the father of lies. Do you know how else we know he's lying? Anybody seen Eve lately? Uh Uh-uh, she did, because she ate, okay? (laughs) Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, this is the pride of life. This is the pride of life. Often what the enemy wants to do in our lives is he wants to convince us that God is trying to keep something from us instead of being for us. Listen, the Bible says that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. If somebody dies for you, they're for you. He is a good dad. He is for his kids. He is trying to keep away things like sin and pain and death. And so... Satan dangles out there the pride of life. Hey, you want to be like God? You want to make much of you? Verse 6, and so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, this is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is when we have a legitimate appetite and we try to fulfill it in an illegitimate way. She's like, are you, he's like, are you hungry? Yeah, I'm hungry. Well, you know, this will work. This is food. Even though God said don't eat of this food, she's like, whatever. I'm going to do what I want with who I want, when I want. And that it was a delight to the eyes. This is the lust of the eyes. And, the, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was the two most damning words to manhood in the whole Bible, with her. You see, we as men often like to think that, that Adam was like, you know, out doing his quiet time or doing whatever men do. And then in, instead, the Hebrew here means that they were elbow to elbow that this passive husband was not fighting for his wife. He was just being passive. And so he ate some too, verse seven. And then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloth. And this is where religion begins. They reject the goodness of their heavenly father. When they realize they are sinful and they are naked and afraid, they run from God instead of running to God. And they say, God, we don't need you. We're gonna cover this up on our own. That's what man-made religion is. And that's what the enemy comes after our very first parents with. Now, we could walk through the whole Old Testament and you can see it coming up in the life of Gideon. Also, you see it in Matthew chapter four when the enemy tempts Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter four, verse one, it says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think? You know, during Lent, when I fast on Tuesdays, when we fast on Tuesdays, aren't you about to die by like six o'clock on Tuesday, all right? By the way, when you have poured yourself out like this, this is when you are most vulnerable to be tempted by the enemy. That's when that artificial lure looks so alluring. You know this. Have you ever been grocery shopping before dinner? Aren't you tempted to buy things that you would never buy if you were full? You're like, what? Buy one, get one free. Captain Crunch, get some Band-Aids, get the Captain Crunch. Let's go, because they cut your mouth. But you'll get them, right? So Jesus is all poured out here, and he's all alone. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God. Notice he's trying to do here what he did with Adam and Eve. Have them question their identity first. If you are the son of God, they command these stones to become loaves of bread. This is the lust of the flesh. In other words, the enemy is saying, Jesus, use your power to meet your needs. You see, if you have an appetite, appetites are given by God, they're twisted by the enemy. That's how it works. Appetites given by God, twisted by the enemy. 
And then the enemy comes along and, and, and tries to fan the flame of the voice of your appetite. And your appetite and my appetite has a very, very short vocabulary. Now, more. That's all it'll tell you. Now, more. Now, more. And the reality is there is nothing in this world that will fully and finally satisfy our appetites. That you can try to fill up your own appetites in an illegitimate way, and it will always leave you empty. That's why Jesus replies, it is written, which means Jesus is going to quote Bible verses. He answers, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, I will not sin in an attempt to temporarily satisfy my appetites, because our appetites will never be fully and finally satisfied. And we know this, but a lot of us, a lot of us get like appetite amnesia. Like we say, I've been down this road before. I tried to fill this void in my life with something. It could be food. It could be sex. It could be drugs. It could be drinking. It could be whatever stuff. You could you try to fill up this appetite because you want to feel better. And it never works. And then the next time you get there, you get to this place and you're like, all right, no, 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 no. no. It's going to be better this time. Do you know how I know we are all liars? Because God allows us to live through this incredible parable every year. You know what it's called? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an incredible parable that each of us walk through to let us know that our appetites will never be fully and finally satisfied. How many of you promise, this year, I'm not overeating in holidays this year. Anybody there? Okay. Liars. All right. Me and you. Good. The rest of you lie a lot. Because what do we do? Some of you show up to the plate with yoga pants on. They're like, I don't care. Just give me the dressing. All right. And you eat until you feel like your toes are going to blow off with your buttons, don't you? And you're like, I am so full, I don't have to eat ever again. <laughs> Halftime of the Cowboys game, you're back, and anybody want a turkey sandwich? Why? Because the more you feed an appetite, the more and more it grows. And the lust of the flesh is when God gives you a legitimate appetite that you try to meet in an illegitimate way. And so Jesus says, uh-uh, my appetites, my desires, they do not rule over me but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, only God satisfies. Do you know what a, maybe, maybe, God, maybe God made it work this way, that there's nothing temporary in this world that could eternally satisfy us to let us know that only an eternal God could fill us up in our soul. So he comes at him first with the lust of the flesh. And then what does he do? Because he's a bass fisherman. He throws that lure out, and Jesus says, no, it's written. I'm not going to do that. And so he clips that one off, and he ties on the next one, verse 5. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, way up high, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down, for it is written. So this is crazy. The devil is going to quote Bible verses to Jesus. That means that some, and the devil didn't have BibleGateway.com or Google. He couldn't like type them up. So he has to go get a Bible and be like, I need a verse. Okay, that's what the devil does. And he goes to Jesus and he's going to quote a Bible verse out of context. And he says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is the pride of life. The enemy is saying to Jesus, Jesus, show everybody what a big deal you are. Jesus, just show off and show out and jump off of the temple and God has to catch you because he said he would. And then Jesus says, well, it's also written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, what Jesus says to the pride of life is I will be lifted up, but not by showing off. I will be lifted up by being a sacrifice for everybody. 
I will be lifted up, but not by trying to set myself on high, but to humble myself to the will of God. And that's how he attacks the pride of life. Verse eight, and again, so what's the devil gonna do? He's only got one more thing in his tackle box. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. In other words, he said, look, Jesus, with your eyes at all the stuff that I can give to you. This is the lust of the eyes. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. By the way, this is how most of our world lives. And this is how a lot of us are tempted. We treat stuff like it is God. We treat stuff like it is gonna give us life. Around here at 1122, we call that the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Not that stuff is stupid. You need some stuff, have some stuff, all right? Like your boat that you're gonna take me out fishing on, all right? I'm not gonna get one. You're gonna pay for it and clean it, but I'll go with you and we'll praise God together, all right? But if you put your hope in the same stuff that let you down last time, that's stupid, and so many times we do. Like you go to buy new clothes, guys, or new outfits, girls. And by the way, if you're a guy that calls your clothes outfits, let's talk, okay? So we need to, we need to straighten you out. But they're gonna let you down. I know you feel like a better man or a better woman for a minute, but here's the thing. The clothes that now you throw away and donate to Hope's Closet, thank you very much, those are the clothes that you used to think, those were gonna be the ones that, that answered all your dreams. And if you think a new house, a new car, you know, a boat, a vacation, if you think that is gonna fully and finally satisfy you, then good luck. Because what you're saying is all this other stuff has let me down. I know what I need, new stuff. You would call you an idiot if you could get out of your life and look what you're doing. And so this is what the enemy dangles in front of us, just some more shiny things. And he, he dangles all the shiny things of the world in front of Jesus. And he's like, I'll give it all to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written. He quotes another Bible verse. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse 11, and the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So all throughout the scriptures, here's the paradigm I want you to see. That the enemy only has three lures or three schemes or three temptations that he can throw your way. The pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he has given us the antidote against the schemes of the enemy. When the enemy comes at us with the lust of the flesh, with the lust of the flesh, to feel a certain way, to, to have an appetite that we say, I'm gonna meet this legitimate appetite in an illegitimate way, then the antidote to that is to live a life of integrity. Integrity. Integrity, most people think it means honesty. Integrity comes from the root word integer, which means one. Here's what this means. That because of the cross of Jesus, that we just live one life, we don't have compartmentalized lives. The way Gideon got in trouble was this. He had like a military life, he had a leader life, he had a, he had a concubine life, he had a wife life, and he had all of these compartmentalized lives. And when we live that way, that's how, that's how we get taken out by the desires of the flesh. When you got a church life and a family life and a work life and an online life and a party life, and those things are different. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. In other words, with the totality of who you are, then you live a life to the audience of one. So my question to you is this, have you surrendered? Have you surrendered your sex life? your desires, your feelings, your appetites? Have you surrendered them to Jesus? Because when you do, that's what gives you the ability to live a life in integrity. The second thing is this, is when he comes at us with, with the lust of the eyes, this is, this is the easiest one to understand. It might be the hardest one to do. 
then the antidote that he has given us is a life of generosity. The moment you begin to feel the claws of the materialism of this world get their, get their hooks in you, the easiest thing to do is just take that money and be generous with it. Just write a big old check. Because you, you thwart what the enemy is trying to throw at you. Now, here's the problem. Most of us in the room are rich, but we don't think we're rich. And most of us think we're real generous, but we're not real generous. That is a, that is a really tough combination. And so what the, what, what the word of God calls us to do is to live radically generous lives so that the hooks of this world don't, don't grab on to us. You see, too many Christians live like we're citizens of this world instead of citizens of his kingdom. And it would be like, I mean, you, you guys get this, right? Whether you live eight or 88 years, that this whole thing that we call life, it's like a Holiday Inn Express. Compared to eternity, we ain't here very long. You realize that? You realize that? And it would be like if you moved into a Holiday Inn Express for the weekend and then called down to the front desk and got the number to Lowe's and said, Lowe's, I want you to deliver me some, some hardwood floors because I'm not walking around on this carpet. This is nasty. Who's walking around on this carpet? You never know what they're doing here. And so I'm putting in hardwood floors. And I can't eat all of these linoleum countertops or wherever they make them out of. I've got to have granite in here in my Holiday Inn Express. And I don't want an eight-foot ceiling. I need a 12-foot ceiling. Can you kick out the third floor for the weekend? Because I've got I to bump this up. And we're going to bump out that window and put in, a, put in a little breakfast nook so we can eat breakfast in the morning. The people at Lowe's and the people at Holiday Inn Express would be like, why would you invest so much in somewhere you're going to stay for so little time? And the Lord would go, yeah, I was going to ask you the same thing. You see, when you, understand, when you understand who God is and what he's done for us, then we become incredibly generous and we don't let the stuff of this world grab onto us. So have you surrendered your finances to the Lord? The third one is this, is when he comes at us with the pride of life, then, then our antidote is humility. Humility. And by the way, humility, the Bible says humble yourself. It's an action, not a feeling. Uh, humility and exercise have a lot in common. Thinking about them, feeling a certain way about them, don't do anything to help you, right? If you just think about going to the gym or if you feel like you ought to exercise, it does nothing for the way you look. It does nothing for your health. The same thing is true about humility. Humility is willfully, it's not thinking, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's just positioning yourself in such a way that you can lift others up. It's this. You know that guy you hate at work? And then you're like, how do you know? I know, okay? I work with people too. And so that, that person that you can't stand, they get on your nerves, they always have to one-up you and tell stories. You know how you humble yourself in their presence? You just look for ways to publicly praise that person. And that's how you humble yourself. And so when the enemy comes at us with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, then we live lives of integrity, generosity, and humility. Now, in the churches that I grew up around, this is where the sermon went in. The guy would stop right here, and he would say, okay, so this week, saints, as we go out, we're gonna live lives of integrity, we're gonna live lives of generosity, and we're gonna live lives of humility, all right? Go, and then here's what would happen. We would go out and try really, really hard, and many of us would do very good for several hours. <laughs> the problem with that kind of preaching is it is just what Adam and Eve did when they ran away from God and they sowed fig leaves. They said, we got this, we're gonna try harder. But the gospel is not, God is good, you're bad, try harder, see you next week, it's not. Because by nature and nurture, guess what? All of us are, have lustful flesh, all of us are greedy, and all of us are egomaniacs. By nature and nurture. 
And so what we have to do here is preach the gospel to ourselves and understand that it's the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that gives us the ability to live lives of integrity, generosity, and humility. The reason that we can live a life of integrity is because we know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin. That, that, that anytime, if somebody would point out to me, hey, listen, you say this, but you act this way. You go to church and you do and feel this way. I'd be like, I know. It's actually worse than you think. You're just evaluating me based on the things I put on Facebook that I allow you to read. I got a whole bucket of stuff you had to die for back here that you don't even know about. But here's the thing. I know that I am a great sinner and I have a greater savior. And when he says it is finished, it was to cleanse all of my sin. And that does not give me the freedom to sin. That gives me freedom from sin so that I can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not by do harder, try harder, but by quit, give up, and live the imputed righteousness that Christ has given unto you. That's what it means to live a life of integrity. The moment somebody calls you a hypocrite, just agree with them. Because I think the moment you, you admit to your hypocrisy, you're no longer a hypocrite. You're just a sinner saved by grace. And the reason that we can live a life of generosity is not just because we're generous. The reason that we can live a life of generosity is because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when we have an understanding of how generous God has been to us as his children, how could we not have his generosity flow through us to a needy world? And how do, you, how do you live a life of humility? Because at the cross, you cannot simultaneously look up at the cross and look down at others. You can't. And at the cross, as you continually understand the deepening depths of your own depravity. See, when you first got saved, you thought, you know, when I was just kind of a bad person that needed to be better, <clears throat> wrong answer. We're not mistakers in need of a life coach, that we're sinners in need of a savior. And as you grow in your relationship with Jesus and your understanding of his majesty gets bigger and bigger and bigger and your understanding of your own crookedness and depravity grows deeper and deeper and deeper, the thing that grows exceedingly bigger in your life is the cross of Jesus Christ. And you humble yourself because Jesus humbled himself on the cross. And the way John 2:16 ends, it goes to 17, it says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, here it is, abides forever. Abides is a relationship word, not a religion word. And if you look up that word abides, it just means to stay close. We don't use it that much anymore, but it is a relational word. Abide means to stay close. How do you stay close to God? Jesus says this in John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. One of the ways to stay close to God is you stay close to his word. You wanna know what God thinks and you read his word. Every single time Jesus was tempted by the enemy, he replied by quoting Bible verses. Now he's got a little advantage on you because he wrote it, but still, every single one of us needs some it is written in our life that we're rooted in the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I mean, let's just be honest. Is, are you gonna be surprised by what the enemy throws at you this week? If you were the enemy, how would you tempt you? Probably the same way he's been doing since grade school, right? It's kind of the same things over and over and over. God has given us this incredible blessing called Google. 
And you could just type into Google Bible verses about whatever the sin is that you're struggling with, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and Bible verses are gonna pop up. And every time the enemy comes against you, one of the ways to stand firm against the enemy is to have some it is written in your quiver to shoot right back at him. And, and I'm telling you, every time some people are like, well, I ain't good at memorizing stuff. I call bull shkibulon on that because you know what's important to you. Some of you know the JAG schedule already, the dog schedule already, the one down in Gainesville, you know those schedules. You know who's the starter. Who's, some of you know the buy one, get one uh, deals that are coming out before the people that work at the store do. You know. You know when the waves are coming, what the weather's gonna do, when a turkey gobbles and when a deer ruts, okay? You know what's important to you. Half of you in the room know every word to ice, ice baby, and it's not helping you in your walk whatsoever. You can memorize some verses, okay? You can memorize some verses. The other thing that it says is this, in regards to this word abide, John 15, four and five, Jesus says, abide in me. That means stay close to me. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This means you just stay close to Jesus. Do the things that stir your affections to Jesus. The life of the Christian is not about sin management. It's about abiding in Jesus. You don't ask the question, how close to sin can I get? You ask the question, how do I get closer and closer to Jesus? Because here's, here's something that's just fundamental that the devil's gonna try to lie to you about. In your walk with Christ, you are fighting from victory, not for victory. If you start thinking that you're fighting for victory, then you think that it's your works that save you, but that's not how it works. That you were saved by grace through faith, not of your own works so that nobody can brag about it. In other words, we are fighting from victory. That God has already established that the game is over and we won because he picked us for his team. We are winners in Christ, not because of our own doing, but because the moment he picked you, you became a winner. About a year ago, on the Little League baseball field at Jack's Beach, we're, we're playing a game, and uh, we're up 10 to 1 going into the last inning, 10 to 1. Now, if you go 11 to 1, it's a skunk rule, and then and you just stop the game, so we're not quite there. But Jack's Beach Little League, also for the 10U League, they have an eight-run rule limit per inning because they don't want to damage the psyche of the precious little butterflies and skittles that we're raising these days, okay? <laughs> I did not get a vote. I would hang 100 on your team, no problem, Okay. And would, and would welcome that in response, all right, if you can. So we're there. So we're up 10 to 1. And JP, it's my son's opportunity to pitch. We just keep our kids on a pitching rotation, and he's going in to pitch, all right? And pitchers get a little tense and tight when they're going in. And so as he's about to go into the last inning of the game, and we're up 10-1, last inning, I call him. I say, JP, come here, come here, come here. Look at, look at the scoreboard. What's the score? He's like, 10 to 1, Dad. I'm like, do you know what that means? It takes him a second, but he finally realizes Oh, we can't lose. I'm like, right, right. If they score eight runs, they have to stop, and then we win 10 to nine. So here's what this means. Throw as hard as you've ever thrown in your whole life. You got nothing to lose. You can only win. You will be the winning pitcher of this game no matter what. And he's like, all right, all right. So he goes out there, and he's facing the first batter, and the first batter is the last kid in their lineup, okay? And if you don't know much about baseball, if you don't know, you, you typically take your worst batter, and you put them last, all right? And so here's this kid, and he's terrible. I mean, just, he didn't know which end of the bat to hold. Basically, he is terrible. And I know what you're saying. Oh, but God has a plan for his life. I agree. It's just not to play baseball, okay? It's fine. He's fearfully and wonderfully made. He's going to be awesome, just not at baseball. And so there he is. JP rears back, chunks the ball, bing, right in the ear hole. Kid falls out, right? 
JP looks at me, he's all freaked out, and I was like, it don't matter. It don't matter, buddy. You can hit them all in the head, and we win. And the other team's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, hold on, that's not what I mean exactly. And so that little unathletic kid kind of heads down to first base, and there he is, sort of concussed. And then the number one batter, you typically take your best and you put them, you know, like one, two, three, okay? And so now the best batter, one of the best in the league is up. And there he is. And so JP rears back. And, and I think at this point it clicks. He's like, okay, I could just, you know, I could mess up royally here and we still win. And so he throws it harder than I've ever seen. Boom, strike one, strike two, strike three. Strikes the first one out. And now the juices are really flowing. Second batter comes up. It's like a home run kid. He throws the ball in there. The kid flies out to our shortstop, Colin Maxwell. He catches it. Boom, we got two outs. Now he's really feeling the juices. Next kid gets up. Up, one, two, three strikes. He's out of the inning. We win the game. And when we won the game, you know what the coaches didn't do? The coaches didn't say, well, it doesn't matter. No, we rushed the field. The whole team was, we won, we won, we won. And I don't know if you've read to the end of the book, but guess what? The game's already established. Jesus has declared victory over sin and death. And so while the enemy may snag you with a hook now and then, it's all catch and release because nothing, nothing, nothing can snatch you out of the hand of God. There is nothing that can separate you from his love. That you and I in Christ are more than conquerors. And with that in mind, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, because when Jesus says it is finished, it counted from you, for you, that when you walk out of this place, that is not freedom to sin, that is freedom from the grip of sin so that you, cannot, you and I could live lives of integrity and generosity and humility, that we could live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when this game is over and you come eyeball to eyeball with your heavenly Father, if you are in Christ, regardless of your struggles and regardless of your sins, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, every single person in Christ will hear these words. Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious heavenly Father, God, we love you so much because you first loved us. God, I thank you and I praise you for the incredible limitations that you have given our enemy. Lord, he is scheming and he is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And Lord, I pray for the people at 1122 today that feel like they're being devoured. Lord, I pray that they would lean into the reality that if they are in you, then sin has no grip on them any longer. That you have conquered sin and the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin. And that, God, we could walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that our church, that we would be full of men and women and students that are full of integrity and humility and generosity because you live in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, we respond to the gospel. God goes first with the gospel, and the gospel demands a response. We respond by joining our voices together because he is worth it. That's what worship is. And we respond by bringing our tithes and our offerings, our first and our best to him, because he first loved us by giving us his best. And we respond in prayer. Some of you feel like the lure that the enemy is throwing in front of you right now is so alluring. And in the book of Peter, God says, cast all your cares upon me, because I care for you. So let us sing, let us bring, and let us come and pray. Let us respond.